Everyone, welcome back to Reclaiming Hope. Uh, my name is Ben Hamilton, and just wanted to just quickly check in with you guys. Brenda and I have been on a little bit of a hiatus from podcast recording. We've had some um, some big events here at our church um, that we both minister in that we've just been attending to. So um, it's taken the majority of our time, but we will be back with fresh conversations, uh, new episodes here at the end of this month, this month being April. Uh, so just wanted to let you guys know that. But in the meantime, we wanted to go ahead and drop here today a, um, a recording from one of those events that I just mentioned prior. Um, we had the, the privilege of both um, being part of a marriage conference here at our church, and um, we had several just amazing sessions, about 85 couples gathered in the room um, to just really press into God's design and desire for marriage, how to work through conflict. And I had the great privilege of leading a session called Struggling and Suffering Well Together, and if you've been um, listening to our podcast, you know that's something we talk about often. So uh, it's certainly um, aimed at couples, and um, but uh, we think it's helpful just for uh, for all of us to just con- continue to wrestle with and consider these things. So we're going to go ahead and leave that here with you today. If you do want, we will we will say on um, on our church's website, which is www.citylightomaha.org forward slash marriage conference. You can view these videos from the conference in their entirety, and there's great discussion questions available as well. So um, those are out there for you, but otherwise just enjoy this conversation about struggling and suffering well together. We hope it blesses you, and we'll be back soon. God bless. All right, yeah, as I said, I've got the the happy talk. I don't know. Um, um, I guess since I'm responsible for this conference, I... uh, set myself up there, but um, soon you'll know why. So on Valentine's Day 2016, um, just five years ago, so despite living in beautiful Orlando, Florida, um, and having spent that night at Disney World um, with my wife, Joy, who's in the back, uh, Disney World, you know, the happiest place on earth, um, my wife spent the better part of over an hour um, holding me as I cried into her lap, um, screaming out I didn't want to live anymore and she'd be so much better off without me. And we were now six years into just kind of a seemingly never-ending saga of chronic health issues uh, stemming from post-military service. Um, I wasn't sleeping. I was constantly in tremendous pain. My mental health was not well at all, evidenced by what I just shared. I lost over 50 pounds, was incredibly weak. The medication trials just, came, just kept just seeming to make things worse, just kept getting worse and worse. And my wife, Joy, just kind of suffered in silence. Um, and I recently asked her what that felt like for her that night, just recalling that night, which is unfortunately just etched into our memories. And one word just leapt out of her mouth, helpless. Um, she said on that occasion, she, she had no idea what to do, so she just helped me. Um, thank you for holding me. Uh, she felt helpless a lot in those days. Um, on top of this, um, we were, um, just at this point in our marriage, we were not able to get pregnant. And um, shortly after this, a couple of months actually from this particular occasion, we found out um, we had infertility. Um, and then just thinking back, just everything that was happening, just the swirl of just suffering and just craziness that was around us, 
I discovered, like, I was just like, good grief, that really was like a, a difficult time. Um, in the 14 months kind of preceding that night, uh, we'd also uh, lost uh, my wife's little sister to a lifelong struggle with chronic disease and one of my dear friends to suicide. Um, you know, it was just, there was little about our marriage at this point that seemed to just not be tainted by just suffering and pain and confusion. And, and I, here I was, I was in seminary at the time. That's why we were in Orlando. I was in seminary. I was training to be a pastor. I mean, I should have all this figured out, right? Or at least getting close, right? Um, so, so why a talk on this? I, and I alluded to this in just, just our time with prayer together. I think it's because, um, and, and I, th- I think we, we all know this, but it's, it's just, I know I, I mentioned um, just kind of uh, how my wife and I love to spend time with engaged couples, and it's because we love to share our life, and it's messy, um, but we love to because like, we, we just want people to, um, to just have a perspective of like just, just life and all the things that it could throw at you. And so um, if you're engaged in this room, you may have already walked through some mess and just dealt with some suffering together. Um, if you're married in this room, you, you might have uh, as well. And so I just, I just want us to look at this for a moment and, because, uh, again, <laughs> this is like the, um, the, the theme of every talk we come up here and we start. This last year has been a hard year, um, but it has. It's, it's been a difficult year. Um, some of us in this last year have maybe been dealt a new diagnosis, um, perhaps related to mental health. Um, as the stress and the strain of what we've all been kind of just experiencing, as all these external stressors just keep squeezing and pressing in on us more than we're used to, and it's caused some things to maybe come to the surface. Uh, perhaps maybe COVID directly has impacted you. I, I myself know a couple people who are kind of deemed these long haulers, kind of still trying to recover from some of the effects of infection. Uh, maybe it's been another health diagnosis, or maybe you've been hit with a diagnosis of infertility or a miscarriage, um, or the strains of feeling isolated and disconnected from just your community and your loved ones as we went through all that just kind of lockdown phase. Maybe the anniversary of a, of a loss that feels particularly lonely this year, a job loss, a financial strain, the worry of what to do with your children, maybe even that, you know, school's closed, and what am I going to do, and, or a child who suffers with chronic illness, or a wayward child who has strayed far from you and far from God. Um, the worry of whether your relationship, which already seemed a little bit rocky, was now going to survive this continual storm, an old sin struggle or addiction that you guys thought you were past that now came back to the surface. These are just a sampling of what I've witnessed in stories that I've heard in my office in the last seven months. Um, it's real. Struggles and suffering seem to be in no short supply. They're everywhere. Um, Jesus said this, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. The Bible normalizes suffering. That's one of the reasons I love the Bible so much. I'm so thankful for this book. I mean, no other religious text kind of is, is so blunt about the realities of life in this broken world. It doesn't sugarcoat or lay a false veneer over the terrible realities of the world that has fallen into sin and is in desperate need of a redeemer. 
And yet, despite this backdrop of our faith and the sobering truth from God's word, with each passing day, we live in a world which increasingly tells us to avoid pain at all costs and to pursue comfort at any expense. And this sets us up to get rocked. I mean, just rocked, devastatingly rocked. And this is the stuff that can easily kind of rip apart couples at the seam in an instant or just cause them to just continually take steps away from one another as it just seems and feels too hard. The pain seems and feels too heavy and kind of bring a slow death to that relationship in effect. Here's what I've come to know about suffering. Um, We frequently do not suffer well together. And these may sound like strange words, and and just even this title of just struggling and suffering well together, it may sound like a little bit of an oxymoron or even a bit off-putting. But let me just say up front, as we just kind of just dive into this topic, the aim of this session is not to rush you if you're here this this afternoon, and you're in a place of struggle, you're in a place of suffering, or that's just recently in your rearview mirror, it's not to, to make meaning out of that season or try to figure out exactly what God is up to or how might he might be trying to use this that you're going through. That's not the aim of what we're here to do this afternoon. Um, a quote I heard in seminary was that in any event in your life, God is doing 10,000 things, right? Just an infinite number. You may be lucky enough to be aware of one or two. Sobering, but true. Um, And my family, my wife and I, we know well the agony of trying to figure out all the meaning wrapped up in um, suffering. And uh, friends, I just want to say there's there's a better way than just kind of meaning-making to struggle and to suffer well together. And I want us to be confident in these words and even in this calling because I believe this is an invite from our God to his adopted children, whom he loved so dearly that he was willing to ultimately die so that nothing would ever come between us again. So struggling and suffering, they're norms of this life in this gospel story that we live in between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, this time and space and where we are in redemptive history, um, which the Bible emphatically says that we are, that's where we are. And if God is indeed sovereign and good, which the Bible also also emphatically shows us he is, then there must be an opportunity here in this place that is good. An opportunity to experience and to know something about God, to know something about one another that is good and that is beautiful. Our God is the God who makes beauty from ashes. Is he not? So when we talk about suffering well together, I'm not talking about manufacturing our own outcomes. I, I think even maybe to, to put it a little bit differently, suffering well together, maybe suffering faithfully together. Think of it like that. How do we struggle and suffer together faithfully, meaning honestly to who we collectively are, who God is and who God is remaking all of us to be? So that's where we're headed. But before we do kind of talk through those, those how-tos, I, I think it's important to spend a little bit of time and wrestle with the question, so um, why do we frequently not struggle or suffer well or faithfully together? Um, so that earlier, I, I think it's worth some time to consider why this can be often so difficult and why the fires of life seem to scatter us from one another. Um, 
and, and, and from each other's hearts rather than to kind of soften and mold and weld us together. Um, so I've come up with two, two reasons uh, why we often don't struggle or suffer, suffer well together. Uh, the first one is I think often we're, we're seeking to appease idols of comfort and escape. I alluded to this in the, kind of in the beginning of our time. So this is reinforced in our Western world from the moment we take our first breath, right? I mean, and comfort, it's, it's not an enemy. Let me say that up front. Like, like, I like to be comfortable. Like to, I, I like a comfy chair. I like, you know, all those sorts of things. Like, Comfort is not an enemy, but the idolatry of comfort and therefore the willingness to pursue it at whatever cost can be deadly, deadly to you, deadly to a marriage, deadly to a relationship. And in our pursuits of comfort, we will maintain, for example, we'll maintain a diet of spiritual teaching in which um, we're only told things that make us feel comfortable, make us feel good, um, tell us what we want to hear. I mean, I think that's been a thread that we've kind of shared, like the, the words of wisdom and, and being in wise counsel, right? We've talked about that today. But to make ourselves comfortable, again, we'll, we'll surround ourselves with just the voices and things that make us comfortable and tell us what we want to hear. We might also pursue unhealthy coping mechanisms, things like pornography or sexual sin or addictions or entertainment, escapism, materialism, and other things like that, things that help us feel we have some element of control, um, which is comforting to us as our world all around us seems to be spiraling into chaos and out of control. Uh, We seek the things which make us feel good so we don't have to feel the things which make us feel bad. I mean, it's just human behavior. It's what we do. Sometimes we we seek to escape through other means. Um, And our desire... Um, my desire in doing this talk today is that God would help us to struggle and suffer well and more faithfully together, keyword being together, okay? Um, so in, during my time in pastoral care, I've seen the unfortunate abandonment of a number of spouses who were struggling and who were suffering. Um, so it happens like this suffering comes into the home, comes into the marriage, and so the other spouse uh, ramps up their hours at work or goes and gets another hobby, spends more time at the golf course or at the gym or with friends, you know, again, to appease that idol of comfort, you know, I'm feeling discomfort, but so I'm going to go try to fill it with comfort. Meanwhile, abandoning, avoiding um, where the discomfort is and ultimately that person, their spouse. And in the end, the, the, the tragic thing is we don't escape a thing. Um, we might even be tempted to escape under the skies of something that outwardly appears holy to avoid our spouse. And I I think this is important to say because we're a room full of, um, I'm guessing we're all Christians here. We're we're gathered in a church. And we even have quite a few professional Christians in this room, like me, people who work for a church. And uh, not long ago, there was a biography written about um, a man, A.W. Tozer, this guy's just a giant in the world of theology and faith and just really gave us um, some beautiful things in terms of uh, unpacking just beautiful, rich theologies and understandings of the Bible um, and just a giant of the faith. He died back in the 60s. But after he did, his wife remarried, um, and it is said she remarked the following about her deceased husband and her new husband. I have never been happier in my life. Aiden, that was her husband, A.W. Tozer, loved Jesus Christ, but 
Leonard, her new husband, loves me. Um, the biography that this was kind of captured in, it paints a disappointing picture of a man who um, just threw himself constantly into kind of holy work, yet often at the expense of his wife and his own family. Um, and I'm not trying to, to malign or, or belittle anyone here. Tozer has had his influence on my life. Um, but it does make me curious, like, might it, might it have been that there was some amount of struggle, some amount of suffering that took place that then caused that just, uh, I, need to, I need to find where I'm comfortable. I need to find my escape and just throw himself into something that, you know, on the outward looked holy, yet at the expense of his own household. Um, I don't know for sure about Tozer, but I do know that in my time in and around the church and in ministry, I have seen this happen. Uh, marriage gets hard, so we start looking for a way out, and so here's a way to spend my time for the kingdom, right? Like, while escaping the things that I do not want to face and where I do not want to suffer. But friends, that's not the gospel call. Uh, Jesus loves his bride all the way to death. He doesn't um, leave the one struggling out there to stay amongst the comfort of the 99, grazing gently in the pasture. No, he, he leaves the comfort of the 99 to go and scale the treacherous cliffs and risk his life and ultimately give it for the one who's in distress. And if you want to know who your one is, start within your own home, look in your family, especially when suffering and struggling enters. This is your first layer of responsibility, guys. And I know from experience, pursuing these idols of comfort and escape, um, even the ones that look holy, they only, it only leads to more misery and pain, and it, it pours salt on the wounds at home, and it just compounds the suffering. And in, in the end, these idols of comfort and escape, they always fail us. Following Jesus, being faithful to Jesus, where he has called us to love and to serve and to be present, that is where comfort is strangely and most beautifully found because that's where Jesus is. Always pursuing the distressed. And where he is, there our comfort is also. So we avoid struggling and suffering well together by appeasing idols of escape and comfort. And secondly, and significantly, let's talk about the, the shackles of shame. So just as suffering is part of the fall and consequences of a broken world tainted with sin, so too is shame. And oftentimes the shame can be the greater suffering than the suffering itself. Suffering typically brings shame. I have been ashamed to be sick. I've been ashamed to feel like less of a stereotypical man because of my inabilities to provide in seasons. I've been ashamed to be so weak when I was once so strong. We've been ashamed to need help as a family, financial help, community, counseling, someone to listen. We felt shame for that. Even though these things are part of our humanity as we all wait for our redemption, when you're struggling or suffering, it's often it feels like you're the only one and no one could possibly understand. That's what it does. So we, we hide, we, we retreat, we, we push people away who try to get close. Um, there's a hero of mine who's helping me understand shame and my own shame and its story that it's telling, Dr. Kurt Thompson. He wrote a book called The Soul of Shame, and he said it many different times in many different ways, but one that I recently heard and it's kind of stuck with me. He said this, 
He said, shame's wrestle looks like this. I am simultaneously wanting to be found and known, but terrified to be found and known. And this makes complete sense if you consider our story of humanity, right? I mean, just just think of Genesis 3, right? Our first parents. So Adam and Eve in the garden, once they choose to disobey God and sin and evil enter the world, the very first weapon we see evil wielding is shame. Do you recall that the Bible says immediately upon eating the fruit, disobeying God, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. So now this beautiful story of what it means to be human in the beginning, which was to be vulnerable yet safe, naked yet without shame, and therefore fully known as an image bearer of God himself, loved extravagantly and enjoying the sweetest intimacy with God and with one another, it's tragically altered. The story just changes. And we pick it up in Genesis 3, verse 8 paints this picture. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So ever since this day, this Genesis 3, 8 day, We come into this world um, beautiful yet broken, and we endure all kinds of evils and sorrows, and we gather up all kinds of wounds. And when we struggle in marriage and when we suffer, it tends to pull our self-sown kind of fig leaves back a little bit, hoping, revealing our nakedness and hoping that we will be found and find some measure of healing. And shame's voice tells us to hide in fear. Sew up more fig leaves. You're no longer lovely. And to be known would be to bring pain into your life, and you're already hurting enough. So just hide. Isolate. That's what shame tells us. But God offers a better way. So I want to spend the remaining of our time uh, looking at how we can suffer well or faithfully, if you will, together, and how this path directly combats these Idols of comfort and escape and the shame that we've just talked about. So how can we suffer well together? You know, I wrestled with this quite a bit um, and just thinking through just lessons that we've learned and just certainly in my time, whether as a, as a hospital chaplain or just doing pastoral care in the church. Um, and these are the two kind of things I came up with. Because again, it's, we can't make meaning uh, certainly not in a context like this, me, me from stage, of all of our suffering, you know. Um, and, and oftentimes we can't even do that in the counseling room. But I would just encourage you, if you're here and you're listening and you're going through something, uh, let me just put that invite out on the table. Um, please reach out. Uh, we would love to sit with you. We would love to hear your story. We would love to help you process. Okay, but here, here are two things. We're going to walk through these two things that I think lay a foundation for what it means to do this more faithfully together, okay? The first one is slow down and learn to lament. There's no instant pot recipe for getting through suffering. We live in a culture, again, which likes to achieve everything at warp speed. Let's consider, uh, for those of us who are working right now, um, 
if you have bereavement time off um, at all, likely you have three days. So if someone in your immediate family dies, you have three days to go handle all those affairs, get everything in order, and then you got to come back and be productive, right? I mean, that's just like, this is just an example. This is just our society, and this is dishonest, and in many ways, it's cruel. It just doesn't work like that. Grief doesn't work like that. I mean, have you ever had anybody tell you, like, you need to get over this? Like, have you ever told yourself, like, gosh, I, need, I should be over this by now. I need to just get over this. Have you ever told your spouse? Like, it's, it's time for you to get over this and move past this. Um, I mean, it's embedded within our society and within our Western culture. Um, and we as Christians, we've, we've got to push back on this, okay? It's, it's profoundly unhelpful to force or project timelines on getting over or past the sorrows or sufferings that we, endear, uh, that we kind of endure on this earth. Uh, it's, it's unhealthy to not allow yourself or someone else to feel the things which are naturally felt as a result of what they are going through. Uh, feelings of anger, confusion, hopelessness, helplessness, despair, sorrow, grief, these appear to offer us nothing on the surface and just thing, seem like things that we should avoid because they're just going to slow us down and get in the way of productivity and all these things. That we've got stuff to do and there's kids running around. But the Psalms in the Bible, they show us that these are a catalog of invites to connect and commune with God in a deep and profound way that almost no other experiences in life offer. And this is where the gift of lament is profoundly helpful in healing even to a soul that is suffering and to a marriage that has been gripped by struggle. So I want to invite you, um, if you're not aware, because we, we can only do so much here today. Uh, if you're not aware, Brenda, who spoke earlier on Conflict and I, uh, we do a podcast called Reclaiming Hope. I think there's a, a plug for it on the back of your uh, booklet, so you can find that later. But we did a, an episode uh, several weeks ago about lament. I just want to commend that to you because we can't really unpack it in its fullness, but I think that, was, that, was, that conversation was helpful for me, and I know we've gotten a lot of feedback. It's been helpful for a lot of people to kind of wrap their brain around what this thing is because it's, it's not really part of our culture anymore um, or things that we do. is kind of things that we've kind of unfortunately left in the past, but there are, the Christian tradition and the scriptures are rich and full of it. So, um, but here's what I want to say about Lament. So contrary to complaining and grumbling, which I think we all know we want to avoid, and there's a biblical reason for that, because the Bible says to don't do it. Um, lament is, it's the, the audience of lament, it's, it's not the air, okay? This isn't like aimless venting or just like a, like a feelings dump on social media, okay? The audience of lament is your, your God, your covenant Lord. That's the audience of lament. Uh, in my experience with lament, Suffering can make me feel so distant from God, you guys. Um, it can make me feel like I'm forgotten, like God doesn't know. And, and lament gives me language to talk to God in a raw and honest way in which I strangely often leave feeling uh, more seen and known by God than before. It's, it's so strange. It's supernatural. Now, now, Scripture is clear. God knows and sees all, okay? Like, he sees our hearts. He sees my heart. He has a better grasp and understanding of what's going on in my heart than I ever do or ever will. And yet, my experience of God, when we go through suffering, 
My wife and our experience of God when we go through suffering, it can feel clouded by that suffering as if a heavy fog of emotions that accompanies it. It can just, it can cloud my experience of God when we feel like um, we need to just bear the weight of this as silently as our kind of righteous religious duty or maybe the Midwestern ethic of just kind of grit and pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality and keep marching on. Lament comes in and it clears the air. And it can restore communion with your covenant Lord. These emotions that are wrapped up in suffering, which we kind of tend to keep pent up and to ourselves, they, they become our self's own fig leaves of hiding. Um, we think we'll be more comfortable if we conceal our woundedness before our divine physician. But that tragically leads to just the spread of infection and ultimately a septic soul. Lament isn't meant to fix. And I think Brenda and I on that podcast, if I remember, we talked about this quite a bit. It often doesn't fix anything. That's not its aim. Lament's aim is to connect. Lament connects us to God as we are to God, to our God who invites us to come as we are. Lament connects us as we are to a God who invites us to come as we are. And again, the scripture is full of it. So if you need language, and again, this is a new thing for you um, to help lead you in the sacred gift of lament. For example, you can just open your Bible to Psalm 88. Let me read just some of the words just pulled from Psalm 88. The psalmist starts like this. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day and I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer. Listen to my cry, for my life is full of troubles. I'm forgotten, cut off from your care. My eyes are blinded by my tears. You have taken away my companions and loved ones. Darkness is my closest friend. Who talks like that? Can we talk like that? Friends, this, this raw and this honest language from an adopted child to their covenant Lord, it's, it's in our Bibles for a reason. God sees our sorrow. He knows our sufferings. There is grace and presence for us in it, but we've got to slow down. We have to slow down. Be patient with one another. We've got to learn to lament. Because as we do, I think eventually we emerge with a deeper trust and a learned safety in the God who listens even to the deepest and darkest cries of our soul. Your ultimate comfort, it's, it's not found in the things of this world, but in the God who made you. Because this is a God who comes down to carry your sins and sorrows all the way to the cross, where he himself will then lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How great is his love for us. How tender is his heart and the sympathy of our great high priest in all your sufferings. We've got to slow down. We've got to learn to lament. And secondly, let's, let's choose to despise the shame and choose to be vulnerable and known. Guys, shame's power is real and it's pervasive. I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. Um, You'll fight against it. You'll come to recognize it over and over again as it creeps its way back into your life over and over again for the rest of your life. 
Um, but friends, as we engage in this battle, which we must, if we're going to struggle and suffer well and more faithfully together, can we just like, remind ourselves just for a moment here that we are battling an already defeated enemy? So shame's message is you need to hide, you'll be rejected for this. Shame's goal is to separate us from ourselves, from one another, from our spouse, and ultimately from God, just like that picture in the garden, right, of, of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But we have a God who is willing to die to make sure no amount of shame or anything else would ever come between us. And as the author of Hebrews, reflecting on this glorious redemptive act, he says in Hebrews 12, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That, that shame that flooded the earth and humanity's hearts as the, as the world plunged into sin in Genesis 3, that caused us to hide our nakedness, that caused us to hide our vulnerability and the unimaginable sorrow of the separation which it caused between the creator and his creation, made in his image out of divine love, made this God leave heaven, wrap himself in our flesh, and ultimately be stripped naked, vulnerable, tortured, mocked, and killed. And with his resurrection, he turns the tables on evil itself, and he disarmed and heaped shame upon shame and ascended back to the heavens and sat down. These are defeated enemies. And our lives, which were once marked by hiding from God, are now, as the writer of Colossians puts it, hidden with Christ in God. We go from hidden from God to hidden with God. This is the truer story we've got to tell ourselves, not shame story, God's story of redemptive love. So with this power and from this place, we, we push back shame by, by ourselves embracing vulnerability and being known. And our last point of lament and, and slowing down, it certainly aids us to help to be vulnerable before a loving God. And, and we just can't emphasize that enough, how important that is. Because again, it's not that we're not already vulnerable and not already known by God. We are. Um, we're good at forgetting this. So a fresh, ongoing experience of this reality of your relationship with God through your prayer, through your meditation, through your worship, through accessing this gift of lament, these are all become rich places of healing and deep connection. Um, but vulnerability is also important in our marriage. You, mo- you both, you've got to learn to be vulnerable and receive vulnerability with kindness and with love. And this takes time and it's difficult often for most of us. And often one of the main reasons couples will end up in my office seeking counsel. This has taken a long time for my wife and I to learn, and we're still learning, and we will still be learning. Um, during some of our early years, I mean, my suffering, was, it was so obvious and, and, and so open, and therefore so often uh, my vulnerability was so obvious and so open. Um, but there often wasn't a space for my wife to be vulnerable. I'll never forget a couple of years into our time in Orlando, which was just years marked by just tremendous suffering, just sitting at a table with some friends from the neighborhood. And my wife started sharing that she frequently, during those years and days, um, cried in her car at work um, because there just wasn't space for her to at home. Um, 
And I was simultaneously, when I, when I heard that, I was both grateful for that moment of vulnerability there, just in the moment, in the present, and to get to know her and to, to know her heart. But I was also grieved that I missed sharing those tears with her um, and, and, and missed being vulnerable and suffering together. And so we've grown over the years. Um, and life has not ceased to give us frequent opportunities to struggle together and to be vulnerable in tough times. Uh, before God called us here to Omaha, to City Light Church, which was just last summer, um, I went through several months of unemployment, and that was just super taxing on our family. Um, certainly, as once it, you know, COVID became a thing, that added a layer to it. Um, several doors had already closed, and, and we suffered some other losses simultaneously in this season. We just, we just had a lot of disappointment, guys. I mean, just 2019 leading into 2020 was just, it was a very, very disappointing year for us in a lot of ways. It was confusing. So having what we had in the rearview mirror, we, the best we knew how, we pressed in together. I'm so thankful for this. Um, we, we, we tried to learn how to um, uh, lament and grieve together and struggle together better. So we started reading to, um, together and on our own and coming together with what we were learning. And my wife came across something that struck her. And she offered it up as an idea, um, just that it sounded just really sacred to her, like something we should do someday. Well, sure enough, we got an opportunity soon after, as both the doors and the jobs that we were waiting for just kind of slammed shut at one time, leaving us with nothing. And uh, the idea was to go have, essentially, we we dubbed a bereavement breakfast. Um, It it sounds super weird. Uh, You know, it'd be normal to go have a celebratory meal when you get good news, right? Like you go celebrate, you go have a meal, you go just enjoy some time. Uh, but this was our opportunity to do the same, but on the opposite occasion. So we, we went out and we had breakfast. You know, and I didn't have a job. We were living off of savings. Like, this wasn't a good time to go spending money. But it was a sacred space for us to just create space to go. And we, we shared breakfast uh, as a family. We shared some tears. We shared our hearts. We shared our disappointments. We sat in that together. We honored the Lord we honored one another that we were still together, we still had each other, and it was one of the sweetest meals I can recall in our marriage. Um, because when we chose to despise the shame, that here we were, disappointment again, joblessness again, confusion, blocked road ahead again, shame, but we chose to despise the shame and come together in our vulnerability. The, the Lord met us there and Hope held us fast. So we've got to be vulnerable together in our marriages. Lastly, and equally as important, we've got to be vulnerable with others. Uh, To struggle and to suffer well and more faithfully together, uh, I think this encompasses both our relationships with God, certainly with one another in our marriage, our family, and with those whom God has placed around us to be ambassadors of his mercy and love. And this is scary. We've all seen Facebook. Like, like we, we just, we're so good at heaping shame and just being quick to judge and hurl accusations and judgment and shame. Like, we're just so good at it. It's scary to, to entrust yourself and your heart and to be vulnerable with community. But it's, this is the role Christ has given us and to his church to bear one another's burdens, to be outposts of his invite and love to the struggler, to the sufferer and to the ashamed. One of the places that we do that at a church is city groups. So I just want to encourage and just extend that invite. If you're, if you're a part of City Light, come be part of a city group. Um, and I know, I mean, we frequently have people show up in our offices who, 
they don't feel like their city group yet is, is a safe place. And, you know, those are things, again, so this isn't like natural. This is something we all have to grow and the Lord has to sanctify us. And so let me say this, if you lead a city group in here, take some time frequently and practice this by actually doing it within your group. I mean, invite someone to share their story, maybe share your own if you've gone through a rough thing and coach the rest of the group in listening and just listening, not trying to fix, just being present, taking the opportunity to know one another deeply, thanking one another for revealing something about their story that's hard, that would make them feel shame, and for the willingness to be known. Say things like, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and allowing yourself to be known. Because what is happening when we do this, you guys, when we do this in places like City Group and around tables and different things, uh, we get to be an active part of God's healing and redeeming of our shame. So when I share with you what I'm going through, my, something that makes me ashamed in my suffering, and you don't reject me, and you, you listen to me, and you sit with me, and you move toward me, and you affirm me, that's actually causing a renewal in my brain and in my neural pathways, which have been trained to, um, to flee into shame immediately upon going something. I've been wired that way because that's what happens in this broken world. Our brains get wired to feel shame from an early age, but now I'm learning that I can be vulnerable and known. And there's safety here. And there's freedom here. And there's love. And so there's God. And this is the promise of redemption. I'll tell one more story. Um, so in our Orlando years, uh, we, in kind of the middle of this, this time, this three or four years that we were down there, we went to see a, a marriage counselor. Uh, the first time we had done that. Um, sweet saint by the name of Roger Shepard. Uh, just love this man. Just so, so much. So thankful for this man. Uh, so we went because we had just reached a point in our marriage where just the suffering had just become so profound and heavy uh, we didn't really know how to talk to one another. Um, it was getting quite difficult. We, uh, our disappointment was kind of saturating our life and our marriage and to the point that we were even becoming disappointed with one another. Um, I mean, we just got to this just really, really hard place. We were deeply ashamed. Um, we were struggling so much. It didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair. So we went to see Roger, our very first appointment. We just kind of dump all these things out. We dump out just all of our grief, all of the suffering, all the confusion, all the disappointment, all the, I don't understand her and how she's reacting in this time, and I don't understand him and how he's reacting in this time. I mean, that's so different than me. That's so different than me. And we just dumped all of this out on this poor man. <laughs> and he just, he created a safe space for us to just do that and just be vulnerable. And he was just so gracious and so kind and so inviting um, just the gentlest man. And I'll never forget at the end. So after dumping all that out, he sits back in his chair and he just gets this kind of just sweet grin on his face. And I'm like, oh God, okay, something's happening here. Like I'm okay. One of two things is about to happen. Either I'm going to want to punch this dude because he's smiling right now, or he's about to say something that is going to change my life and our life and our marriage. And thankfully, it was the latter. And he looked at me after several moments of just silence. And he looked at Joy and he said, you know, guys, every time God brings me a new couple, I get so curious. Boy, what is he up to here? Um, 
Because God is a redeemer, right? I mean, that's who he is. That's his nature. That's his character. That's where this whole story is going, right? So, so we just spent just all this time just unpacking our story, but he's reminding us of the grand story, the big story, overarching all of our stories, which all of our stories are folded up into. And he said, this grand big story, it's moving toward redemption. Thank God he's shown us where this thing goes. We're in between the first and second comings, but we know where this thing goes. It's headed toward redemption. He's a redeemer. So I get so curious, what was he, was he doing when he brings a new couple to me? And he just looked at me just in the eyes with just the softest, kindest eyes. And he said, Ben, what is he doing in you? What is he redeeming in you, in your marriage to joy and in all these things? And then he looked at my wife and he said, what is he redeeming in you, Joy, in your marriage to Ben and in all these things? And he sat back in his chair and he just said, I'm so curious. And it's like, guys, um, I'm a believer in counseling, so I'll keep going. But like we could have left and been good after that. Uh, Because what he did, he gave us such a gift. Um, So we talk about slowing down and learning to lament. We talk about um, despising the shame, being vulnerable and known, and then you, this bow of this posture of curiosity because I know daddy's got it. I know he's writing the story, he's authoring the story. I know where everything's headed, and I know we're folded up into that somehow, some way. So, this, this posture of just feeling safe and curious and, and and being confident in the Redeemer, which, which then begs and invites us to know the Redeemer, right? Um, so so if, if, if we're Christians here in this room and your, your life is hidden with Christ, like that's the invite too. You need to press into your covenant Lord. You need to learn and mine the scriptures for his precious promises and cling fast to them so you can be confident and sure of his character so that you can stay curious. You can trust and know in the Redeemer. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It's so true for me. If his law, if God's word has not been my delight, the thing in which I've built my life on, the rock of my life, the rock of my wife's life, the rock of our marriage, of our family, we would perish. We would have perished long ago in our affliction. So may God grant us all the grace to struggle and to suffer well together, together. And may we all learn to slow down in this busy world, to slow down. Let's learn to lament. Let's despise the shame, our defeated enemy, and live vulnerably with one another and be known. And May we all the while stay curious for what the covenant-keeping Lord is doing, not forgetting the bigger story, not neglecting his promises, but looking, hoping, and trusting for his redemption. Let's pray. God, if if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. That is true for me. That's true for my wife. That is true for our family. Um, God, may, uh, may that be the bedrock in which all of us just stand. 
Thank you that you're an inviting God, that though this world is just filled with troubles and sorrows, um, thank you that you're honest with us and you invite us. And God, thank you that you aren't a God who's um, indifferent or unaware of what we're enduring, but you, you left the comforts of heaven to wrap yourself in vulnerable flesh and identify with us um, so that we could come to you in great confidence in every time of need. Father, I don't want any couple in here to struggle or to suffer. I certainly don't want any more of that in my family. And yet I recognize the world in which we live in. It's so obvious. God, if any of us were um, in any kind of illusionary state, God, the last year has certainly peeled the curtain back to show us this world is not what it's supposed to be yet. This world is so broken, and we are so broken, and we're so desperately in need of you. And so um, we thank you for who you are, and we want to know you more so that we can thrive, that we can be vulnerable, that we can connect with you even in the hard times and connect with one another. Um, And through all this, Lord, experience your ongoing healing and restoration as you move us all toward redemption. Thank you. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.